Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Econoday Unplugged. It's Tuesday the 14th July 2020. Mark Pender is stateside and I'm Jeremy Hawkins in London. Last Friday, the People's Bank of China signalled it has started to wind down the emergency easing packages introduced to combat COVID-19. Facilities covering relending, rediscounting and excess liquidity injection will be retired and credit supply will be kept in line with the pace of economic recovery. However, just a couple of days later, the World Health Organization reported a record daily increase in global coronavirus cases with more than 230,000 new infections. And that means that, in contrast to China, by and large, fiscal and monetary policies around the world can be expected to remain geared towards providing substantial economic support. And Mark, I see there was additional evidence of US efforts to do just that in a huge June budget deficit announced just a few hours ago. Uh, yes, uh, it was pretty amazing. The one thing before uh, uh, we have to understand with this budget that the uh, this was for uh, um, uh, June. Um, that was an $864 billion uh, monthly um, deficit that brought the uh, year-to-date uh, deficit uh, to, what is that, about nine months into the uh, f- fiscal year to five, uh, five trillion, almost on the dot, that's up 50%, um, up 267% uh, from the year ago comparison. But this is the point I wanted to make that uh, the individual tax uh, season has been pushed back here in the U.S. from uh, April to July. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's right now. So individuals now are paying their taxes. So that should – so that comparison, that 267% comparison is out of kilter because it removes the biggest um, uh, uh, surplus a month off the calendar, moved it to G- July. So there should be a little bit uh, less of the, the trouble. But if you, when you look at the graphs, it's it, it's astonishing, and it and it gets to this logarithmic thing when you're when you're trying to make a graph. The prior years, the um, the the amount of uh, increase in the deficit was extreme, but it was in a a, a smaller range. Now, when you graph that, that prior increase just disappears, even though it was extreme yeah. at the time compared to what we see now, which is this gigantic, massive, incredible. If I remember uh, rightly, and I'm sure you can correct me on this, but I think was it during the 2009, the global recession and the deficit the entire year was only 1.4 trillion. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it really just underlines just how this thing has literally gone through the roof, be it and, you know, the odd distortions here and there whatever and it's also in the feds balance sheet okay so the government is the fiscal side which are mostly temporary uh or less permanent uh fixes or less permanent stimulus as opposed to the federal reserve when it adds to its balance sheet that stays for quite a while and uh and it has gone to seven last i looked it was about seven trillion uh so that's basically had doubled um, and I guess in 2009 is when it first started to appear. It was a, a, about a trillion dollars, uh, 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 and then it moved up uh, from there to about for the four and a half trillion peak, I think, um, several years back before they started bringing it down. Now it's 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 through the roof as as well. Uh, how long can this go on? Um, if it stops, there might be trouble for the financial markets. I I don't think the Fed is going to stop, but it, can the government continue to spend money like this 
as long as there's someone buying it, and you know, the the Federal Reserve is the biggest customer or one of the biggest customers, yeah, right. and that's a little bizarre. And can they be the only customer? Well, you know, that's, uh, you know, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, as they say. <laughs> so um, that you, you wouldn't think that w- could go on. And, and uh, you know, we have an election year. And can there be another um, stimulus package put through? Um, that remains to be seen. Um, and uh, but so far, there hasn't been any breakdowns in any auctions. That would be the first real, you know, uh, danger signal. Um, have you seen any bad auctions go off in Europe or anything like that? No, I mean, it's, it's quite remarkable. You think the amount of money which is being um, being borrowed by these governments, say, pretty well all around the world at the moment. But auctions uh, across Europe, by and large, have gone extremely well. Um, as you mentioned, a lot of it's got to do with central banks, be it the Bank of England or the ECB over here, which uh, you know, are buying a load of paper at the moment. But, it, but even putting that on one side, um, it does seem to be the case that private sector investors are still struggling to find some kind of reliable or safe asset that they can buy, which gives them the potential of, you know, at least earning some kind of capital appreciation on yields across a lot of Europe are negative for out some way. But so long as we've got the economy in recession, doubts about how quickly we're going to emerge from the, the coronavirus, there's always a possibility we can see these yields go down even further. And if that's the case, of course, and you hold the bond, then you can make money on it. Now, the ECB has a meeting on um, Thursday. Tell us uh, what you're looking for. And also uh, touch on uh, quantitative easing. Okay. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, so ECB meeting then in th- oh, sorry, on Thursday, so it's July meeting. I don't think really anyone's expecting too much to be coming out of this, but um, we did see you know, a big, well, by their standards, a big easing at the last meeting. Um, that was when they decided to expand their so-called pandemic emergency purchasing fund, uh, the PEP that most people call it now. That was introduced in March and they, they increased it by some 600 billion euros um, to one 1.35 trillion in June. And, and it's really and this is yep. a temporary it's called PEP, which is fun, right? But it's um it's temporary. Well, it's temporary sort of. They said at the moment it's going to run through for as of as of last month they that they extended it. So the the earliest it can end is the middle of twenty twenty one, but essentially it's going to remain in place until such time as they believe that the effects of the uh, COVID nineteen have been taken care of. And I guess really gotta say it's currently doing most of the work. As I mentioned, this thing was introduced in March. As of the end of June, cumulative net purchases uh in the PEP uh, stood at what just over 365 billion euros so it's really providing most of the additional stimulus on top of the rest of the quantitative easing and by that i mean talking about there's two other aspects to this one they have this so-called temporary qe envelope uh, which amounts to a total of 120 billion euros and that's a, a flexible thing which will run through until the end of this year and of course they have their long-standing so-called asset purchase program the old app and that's going to continue to run uh, indefinitely at this stage until, well, at um, a rate of 20 billion euros a year. So there's a lot of money they're still sticking into the system at the moment, but the most flexibility they have and really the sort of the, you know, the bulldozer approach, I suppose, currently is this pet. And that's what markets will be will be focusing upon. 
Um, I think in terms of interest rates, they really made it pretty well clear that they don't see much value in taking interest rates down any further. So they've got what's become their key rate now, the deposit rate, which is at minus 0.5%. The main refunding rate, the so-called refi rate, is at 0.0%. That, of course, for a long time really dictated where interest rates went. And at the upper end, the marginal lending rate, which doesn't actually do a great deal these days, uh, that's at plus 0.25%. they really indicated that they don't believe now that cuts in short-term interest rates are going to offer any kind of uh, use in terms of keeping longer dated yields down whatsoever. So it really all comes down to you know buying these bonds through the quantitative easing program. Do you think they're going to increase any of their QE on Thursday or announce any lending facilities or anything like that? I think from Given the fact that for once they actually exceeded expectations with their increasing QE at the last meeting, um, it's pretty unlikely. I also think there's been some comments coming out of uh, Christine Lagarde, the ECB president over the course of the last couple of weeks or so, kind of intimating that they believe they've done a fair chunk now and they need it. You know, they need simply a, a time for that to have some kind of impact on financial markets and the economy. Now, so, so, so monetary policy is a status quo right now in Europe. What about fiscal policy? And we have a big meeting on Friday. Are, do, are there is there a belief that that sh- should also be a status quo? Well, that's a good point. I mean, this this is a big meeting, and it's it, and partly I think you can say that what comes out of this is going to at least have some kind of implications for what the ECB does further out. As mentioned, ECB this week, I think it's pretty unlikely we'll see anything, but that doesn't rule out some kind of additional easing, say probably through quantitative easing later on in the year. But as you mentioned, there is this huge meeting, an EU leaders summit taking place at the back end of this week, and this is where they'll be thrashing all the out all the details of this so-called called post-COVID recovery and resilience fund, which basically is the bailout fund. They're trying to get agreed by all the EU leaders if it's going to actually come in fruition. Now, this thing amounts to 750 billion euros, which to be perfectly honest, is not as much as it could be anyway. But as we've mentioned before, there's been this major sticking point with um, those who actually want to push the thing through and those so-called frugal four members who still are extremely unhappy about, well, they think the size of the package is too big in the first place. And also they think it should all be directed through loans rather than the bulk of it coming through grants. And it's certainly not clear on the basis of what we've had coming out of, I think it's some Dutch comments some earlier on this week, it still seems as if there's, a, you know, there's major disagreements about what shape this package should take. And I think were it to be the case, we come out of these, the EU leaders meeting uh, Friday and Saturday and there's no agreement, then, well, a couple of things. One, I think it's going to be bad news for the euro because, again, it's just going to be signs that when push comes to shove, these politicians can't really get their act together and come out with united front. And two, it's just going to add pressure on the ECB. Well, the fiscal policy is not to do the job, then monetary policy is going to have to do even more. So I think what comes out of this uh, this session could actually be you know, important for Eurozone financial markets and the euro. Well, for, um, for uh, the investors and for the news people, how do you think the, the information is going to come out? You say it's a two-day meeting, two meeting into Saturday? Yes, yeah, it kicks off on Friday. I think the announcement will either be Friday evening or on Saturday, and they'll, make, uh, they'll issue a communique about what happened. So do you think, do you think there'll be headlines coming out during Friday? Uh, there uh, may well on be. The I, yeah, I mean, they always have a dinner 
um, after which quite often if they want to you know all of a sudden leaks are provided it's so often the case now that you know almost it doesn't matter what the meeting is you know various nuances are given out to members of the media or whoever it may be to the fact that it's it's kind of rare that markets are ever really really surprised by what you know fiscal policy or monetary policy does these days they try to do the softly softly approach and make sure markets are ready for it but yes there will be an official communique which outlines what's going on and that's on a Saturday when the markets are closed or yep, very that's illiquid. Right. So that's going to be a difficult. Um, it could well be. Yeah, certainly yeah. have to see. Um, I suppose from a numbers side here, it kind of suggests it's still needed anyway. Um, we had some industrial production figures today. These will be for May. Um, showed uh, Eurozone industrial production on the month um, up 12.4%, which actually looks half decent. But of course, it follows an 18.2% decline last time round. And it means and its levels, as we keep iterating, that are important now. The level of industrial production in the region is still 19% below where it was in February before the uh, coronavirus struck. So retail sales seem to be holding up a bit better but i think the overall picture in terms of uh, the eurozone anyway is that although demand may be starting to re-emerge output probably you know progressing rather more slowly have you noticed that these percentage changes um the year on year when you're comparing a june to a june last year or may to a may last year is about the same or in the same ballpark as the comparisons to february and i guess that reflects what had been a very flat year uh, if not a little bit of a downtrend. Um, so when we, we make the point where you should compare it to February, but it's it's like um, it's like a, a you know a flat plateau that just all of a sudden fell into a gigantic crater. Mm-hmm. And and um, so that comparison, so those comparisons are kind of interesting. Um, and you get you know different looking uh, uh, slopes. You get this month to month slope is going straight up now. But then, it's like you were saying, the year-on-year slope, or compared to where we were in February, that that is maybe not going any deeper, but it's not coming up very much. That's right. I mean, certainly, well, certainly from the European side, I, I suspect your side might actually be doing rather better. But in terms of Europe, um, you have had some fairly spectacular monthly increases in production, depending upon which Eurozone member state you want to look at. But with, you know, with very few exceptions, even though you've had a huge monthly increase, it is from such a low level that there's still an awful long way to go to get back to where we were. And I think, you know, by and large, looking at the kind of survey evidence we've had for June and sort of some early calls from bits and pieces talking about July and business expectations and so on. Yes, it looks as if the worst is behind us and we should see positive growth in terms of overall GDP for the third quarter. But I don't think there are too many businesses really expecting the third quarter to be that good. And certainly by the end of this year. I think in general, uh, the um, the supposition is that we'll still have Eurozone GDP significantly below where it was in the the first quarter. You know, business expectations, you had a report today, right? uh, But before, uh, you know, we here in the U.S., we have this question now about closings and uh, renewed closings in major Mm -hmm. states, you you know, major economic centers. um, And that has thrown up into the air it hasn't affected the stock market of course but uh it, it you know as far as you, your own ability to you know your own forecasting uh it, you don't know exactly this is a big unknown now it doesn't seem to be playing the covid doesn't seem to be playing out the same way in the in europe or in the uk yet um although you kind of wonder like i say the 
a lot of images we see here in the states are of people not wearing masks and and, and clustered in in small uh, friendly groups, right? And is there a question now? Yeah, the business expectations number. I mean, did you see anything where maybe people are not as excited as they once were? Well, I think it's it's safe to say that uh, it's never safe in this kind of environment, is it? That's probably a ridiculous comment. But so so far, on the basis of what we know, the trends for COVID are pretty well still going down. Um, so they're heading in the right direction, which has meant that the reopenings we've seen pretty well across Europe so far don't seem to have caused any big problems. You know, there have been a few clusters, notably in Germany, uh, where there's a fairly major meat processing plant in North Rhine-Westphalia. Uh, which produced a, a number of cases and that was met with an immediate localized lockdown but outside of that it, it seems to be the case that what's re what has reopened has pretty well stayed open and that's of course for those people who've got a forecast at least gives you something to hang your hat on but even then but around this there's still changes taking place for example in the uk today um the government announced that face masks and coverings will be comp compulsory in english shops uh from the 24th of july now there's been a lot of talk as to whether or not do you need to wear face masks or don't you um but it does seem as if some of the medical advice certainly to the uk government be it out of a world health organization or all their domestic scientists suggesting that if nothing else it's sensible to do it so i think there's still a good deal of uncertainty about about how best you treat this thing and I think there's genuinely a lot of concern about the risk of a second wave and indeed we've had some medical experts in the UK making noises just earlier on today to the effect that there's a real danger that there'll be a second wave in the winter time and it will lead to even more deaths than we see you know during the course of a current outbreak so I think there's this sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah. have there been discussions about if it, uh, what a second wave that may be appearing right now in the U.S. means to Europe. Well, I think, as always, from we've seen from the you know the way the stock markets react, when we do see the stock markets come down these days, it tends to be because there's been some particularly bad COVID numbers coming out of the states. Now, no, there's not by no means there's a one-for-one -one correlation on that. But typically, when we've seen the European markets struggling, it's because they've seen bad COVID numbers from your side of the water, and that's interpreted as being bad news for global growth. And you overlay that with you know the ongoing you know fight we've got now between the US and China of Hong Kong and everything else and there's this unease I think still which had it not been as we talked before about all the liquidity sloshing around these global markets then we might well have seen more of a knee-jerk reaction on the downside you know to bad news than we see at the moment it really does still seem to be the case that investors want to buy this question of what they can find to buy so good news is good news or is bad news well perhaps it's not quite as bad as it might have been you know in other times um, UK was disappointing today, I should say, while we're on Europe. And um, we get, say, these monthly GDP numbers now. And for May, it was up 1.8%, which if you start annualising that, of course, it looks really good. Um, but that follows the April decline of 20.3%. These are month-on-month -month numbers. And that, in turn, followed a fairly significant downward division to March, which now stands at minus 6.9%. So despite May... Again, just comparing it with the pre-COVID numbers we had back in February, the UK economy is almost um, 20, just a fact, just over 23% smaller than it was just a few months ago. So there's again, we've got this you know, indications of a recovery coming through, but there's very little in the European data in general, and particularly in the UK data at the moment, you know, suggests it's going to be V-shaped. 
Um, and so having just talked you know, quickly about you know, global trade before, um, we've seen the pound under pressure over the last few weeks. One reason has been the fact that you know, summer numbers have been disappointing and sterling certainly didn't like the May GDP numbers today. But also uh, we've had just had news that a government U-turn regarding the Chinese telecom company Huawei. Um, that will now be banned from supplying new equipment to the UK's uh, 5G networks as of the end of this year and existing equipment will have to be taken out. I think it's by 2027. Now, this comes at a time, of course, when everyone's got an eye on these post-Brexit trade talks and wondering what the future is going to hold for UK international trade. And the UK itself, of course, is desperate to find new trading partners um, in case they don't get a new trade deal with the European Union. So anything which seems to be upsetting that is another negative for the pound. Now, China currently only holds, what, about three, perhaps four percent of the total UK export market. But UK would like a lot more of that. Um, but you know, the, what this Huawei decision is certainly going to hurt relations with China on that front. And it's and again, that could be bad news as far as UK trade is concerned. So there's quite a lot of issues, I think, for the pound, which continues to leave it one of the uh, more volatile of the major trading companies um, currencies. OK, what else have we got? Um, I suppose quickly mention on China. Um, it is quite a big week for them, culminating uh, worry on the GDP numbers. What day are out Thursday or out, um, where are we? Thursday morning, aren't they? Um, they're expected to see a fairly decent rise, about 9.4% on a quarter and 2.3% year on year. That'll be after uh, an annual decline of almost 7% next uh, last time round. So in the first quarter, that's going to be important, I think, for markets because clearly people looking towards China. China, particularly in light of the, uh, the central bank's announcement, it will start to phase out uh, some of these, uh, these these supportive measures it's been introducing uh, to keep markets going. So if we were to see any kind of disappointment there, that could be disproportionately bad, I think, for equity markets. We also had uh, Chinese trade uh, today, yep. uh, and that showed improvement. So uh, an increase in uh, imports and also exports, too. Yep, we did see, as you say, I think where are we? Exports up 0.5% on the year. That was after down over 3% and imports up 2.7%. And that was down after almost 17% on the mm -hmm. year. So again, you're right. I mean, things are moving in the right direction. Just hope they can continue to move that way. Um, but by the same token, I think last week when we had Brian on, we're talking about some of the problems with Hong Kong and you know, who may actually benefit that from Singapore potentially being one. Well, Singapore's economy mm -hmm. now know entered technical recession. Mm -hmm. um, as it shrunk by a record 41.2% uh, quarter on quarter in the second quarter. Now, it's got to be said that these numbers, I think, are largely built just on the April and May data. They don't have a lot for June at the moment, but that's a, a pretty big downturn. That said, um, Singapore's also spent the equivalent of what I think about fiscally about 20% of GDP trying to sort its economy out after COVID. So hopes are very much that we will see a rebound. But well, well. They, they also win the award for the Econo Day calendar for first out on a uh, second quarter. You know, it's pretty uh, report. It's a pretty like you say. It's you know it can't include too much of June, but. It is, you know, it, well, the UK has its monthly report, and, and and we're up, we're up to May, April and May, but Singapore was out early. They they weren't hiding anything. So, in fact, it's an interesting question because there's so much focus now upon you know the very latest economic information. Now, for the UK, the GDP was only May, but at least that's whole economy for May. Is there any talk stateside of introducing monthly GDP accounts? Well, not not accounts necessarily, but monthly GDP data. 
No, no. The the uh, the typical conversation of data in the U.S. is that it's overextended. Uh, Based on, yeah, uh, you know, based on, for someone who writes them all up, I won't, I won't believe it when you <laughs> yeah, say that. <laughs> I believe that, but actually, the the government funding for it, so to to create, they're always, you know, it's always on the margin. Which ones are they going to cut back? But they never do really. But uh, it's difficult to get any kind of new um, project going. So the U.S. is kind of slow on the GDP, uh, which doesn't come out. We'll, we'll get the, the first estimate for the second quarter at the end of this month. It'll be interesting to see what that number is. I imagine they're going to say, what What do you think? Minus 10% annualized uh, for the second quarter? I mean, that's just a rough guess. What? what? But, for, for where? For, you, for the U.S.? Uh, yeah, yeah. What I do don't you know. Your guess is better than mine, but... <laughs> Probably <I'm> thinking, not. <laughs> well, <laughs> don't say that. Don't quote him on that. I, don't, I mean, Europe's going to be bad. We know that. I mean, because, of course, you know, we tend to look at it quarter on quarter over here rather than annualised. Um, but I would guess second quarter for Europe's going to be down something like 25% plus. It's going to be it's going to be a really bad number. And UK currently is tracking about minus 20%. Even so it's means, uh, uh, GDP. You said the sterling went down on that. So um, what was it that disappointed again? Well, the markets were looking in terms of the monthly numbers for May. GDP was expected to be up, you know, because we've had the reopen, well, at least partial reopening. The worst month was April, so May we should starting from a very weak base. We should get a semi-respectable number. So the market expectation was up five percent. So um, yeah, less than two percent was certainly disappointment. I mean, again, we can say that you know these numbers are all over the place at the moment, but nonetheless, investors want to see better numbers, and a miss like that certainly wasn't taken well. And how do they use the three-month to three-month in this monthly report? Well, if you believe the Office of National Statistics, which, of course, we all do, then as far as they're concerned, when they're putting together the latest month's numbers, you know, they're working off really just output numbers. They don't have the expenditure figures. So the whole thing is based on output. And yeah, like anything else, the early survey data are partially reliable, but it tends to be revised sometimes quite a lot. So they stress when you're looking at really kind of the underlying developments, you should be looking at this rolling three-month change. Now, if we do that for the U.S., UK. So in the three months to May, um, compared with the previous three months, um, total output was down, what, just over 19 percent. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's so, picking up April and March. It's pick, yeah, exactly. It's picking up the, the really bad months. So, I mean, clearly, yes, I mean, it's already looking at that. But by the same token, because those months were so bad, it kind of bases a view down of, of where you are now, mm-hmm. which comes back to this, you know, the need for um, early data. But then going back to GDP, I suppose the closest thing you've got now is what are these? I know you don't like them, but these these regional now casts you get out of a string mm, of yes. Fed banks. Yeah, that's true. But I know you don't yeah. you don't place much weight on them, do you? Well, I don't know if I. Or does the market? Well, I should ask you. I should, no. Does the market? Well, actually, I, I you know I you know I don't want to talk too much about business here, but in the past I've supported Econoday running those. But, you know, given the great vast quantity of data that we already run, um, you know, there wasn't any enthusiasm in the staff to <laughs> to pick them up. So uh, that's kind of how that dropped. Um, but uh, um, there are several of them, too. And they're yeah. all done by, you know, the feds and stuff. So, so it's, you know, uh, but they can, they can differ quite a lot, can't they? They can. Yeah. yeah. Well, especially now. Right. Yeah. But, and so, yeah, because you just have to, you know take blind guesses at some of these numbers of course yeah and um and all the seasonal adjustments are going to be completely 
almost useless, you know, they're going to be taking up these little nuances of, of you know, and uh, what's happening now is this, and that's going to affect future uh, adjustments too. What do you do with some period like this? Yeah. Uh, and yeah. does it get folded into future numbers? You know, maybe it shouldn't, but that that's another, you know, that's another issue. One for the stats guys, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, see, we're probably talking far too long here. So I'll just quickly wrap this up with uh, central bank staff, nothing of any great note. Bank of Japan expected uh, later on today, no change expected there. Bank of Canada on Wednesday, similarly, no change expected there either. So let's end it there for today then. Uh, we'll be back next week. Um, and in the interim, all the key market moving data and events can be found in O'Connor Day's global economic calendar, as usual. From Mark and myself, thanks as ever for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you next time. Bye for now.